Hello, everyone. Dr. Maria Sampalis here. Pleasure of having Yasmin, Yasmin uh, Gaman with us today. He is an optometrist in uh, Jordan, well-known all over the world for all his contributions to optometry. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for hosting me and thank for the whole audience who are listening to us. For those of you that do not know him, he is an optometrist in Jordan, holds a PhD in optometry and vision sciences, uh, and a master's in optometry from the University of Brantford in, in the UK. He's associate professor of optometry and uh, chairman of the optometry department in, um, and I'm sorry for butchering this, Alan Manman uh, University. Yeah, University. <laughs> Apologize. Um, and so, uh, senior optometrist at the Arab East Medical Supply. He is a consultant for the Lions Club, um, chair of Continuing Education uh, Committee and Optical Professionals, a higher medical council, um, uh, Ministry of Health in Jordan, also is a fellow uh, for contact lenses, um, an educator of the year in 2017 in Europe, Africa, and Middle East. I mean, global awards, uh, Peter Ackland Award in 2020, um, Dubai Conference uh, uh, Ambassador for 2020. Um, you know, also holds uh, an educational chair for the World Council of Optometry, has so many different influences for optometry all over the world. So it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're global. So you know all the struggles that optometry has all over the world. And one of the big things for this, uh, you know, global podcast interview of, of leaders all over the world is to show optometry how it's so different all over the world and, and, and how much more work we need to do. Can you just give us just some back, uh, quick history on your education in Jordan, your journey and, and how you got to, you know, starting a first program um, for the university? Yeah, can you imagine that? Well, basically, let's go back to 1999 when I want to, uh, graduated from high school and I wanted to choose a major. And I was telling uh, one of my uh, cousins who used to st who studied in the UK and she was the first female Jordanian to open an optometry practice. She told me, why don't you just go back to the UK and do optometry? I told her, I don't want to leave my country. If I can find something here, I would prefer that. And... Uh, I, my father actually approached one of the universities here in Jordan and told them, listen, this profession is very lacking in our country. Can we do something to support that? And we sat with the ophthalmologists association, with the opticians associations and the university. And we said, well, let's start the first bachelor's degree program in this country. And what we did, uh, we approached uh, several uh, organizations worldwide, such as the World Council for Optometry, and we talked with uh, some of the nonprofit organizations. And they had few optometry doctors from the U.S. who were veterans and actually supporting uh, the work of charities in the Middle East. And they actually suggested two names who joined the faculty and supported the program. And hence, uh, the first program was born. 20-something years later, I decided, well, we don't need only just one optometry department. We need two because we have very few in the Middle East region. And we started a new one, me chairing it. Uh, also, again, asking support from the regions. And thus, we have uh, graduates from at least 
10 different countries around us. And yeah, we're fortunate that we reached to a bachelor's degree level. Unfortunately, we're eons beyond what's going on in the US and even in the UK. Can you imagine we don't have uh, a therapeutics license? Even diagnostics uh, drugs use is only allowed within hospitals under supervision of ophthalmologists. Even after 20 years of education with involving US and UK um, teachers, and still we are at that level, unfortunately. Yeah, a lot of the interviews that I'm doing is it, I, I hear a lot of that, and it really frustrates me because we have so much education, we do so much, we're, we, we are really primary care um, for the patient, and it, it's really frustrating to see all these you know struggles that optometrists face all over. But I think you're taking the step. I mean, you're you're doing a lot to help. Um, and with your role in the education committee for the World Council of Optometry, what are you doing to kind of help with education and move forward and trying to help with scope practice with that? I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the WHO has released their uh, uh, competencies framework for eye care professionals. And the interesting thing, at the WCO level, we are moving from the old system of reviewing uh, programs, and we are focusing on competencies-based optometry programs. So hopefully in the next three, four months, with the committee uh, members from all over the world representing the five regions of WCO, uh, we'll be uh, hopefully by the end of this year releasing a document, a competencies-based uh, curricular support elements to hopefully support programs like the one we started in Jordan, others that have started already but still evolving, and those who are planning to review their programs to use uh, the hopefully released uh, by the end of the year document to think about their programs in strategic ways. Um, I'm currently writing a manuscript about uh, the situation of education in the Middle East. And one of uh, the people who are working with uh, said, well, can we look at it from a competencies-based uh, point of view rather than just curriculum and titles and the old-fashioned system? So we are hopefully by the end of this year, the WCO chair committee uh, and the committee itself will be releasing this document that will be aligned with the WHO document, hopefully raising and actually moving optometry from just personal and regional efforts to a worldwide effort, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. It takes time, but I, I think uh, there's a lot of passionate people that I've talked spoke to, you, you, you as well, um, that really want to move it forward. And I think just with perseverance, we, we can. I mean, and I think with you know, the WCO and other optometrists all over the world trying to say, hey, I, I you know, here in the U.S., we have diagnostics, we have therapeutics, um, and, and patients are better outcomes for it. Why not help support our colleagues uh, overseas as well? You. you know, the other thing that I was really impressed was, you know, Educator of the Year um, in different countries, continents as well. well and um, that's why I wanted to have you on the show. And, and um, give us a little bit of a background on that. How is, you know, contact lens education and training uh, different um, in the Middle East and Africa? And, and just so we can have some understanding here in the in the U.S. 
Yes, I would like to thank actually IACL, the International Association of Pentaclass Educators, uh, whom I'm a member and a fellow of. Uh, they thought my work in the region was worthy of an award back in 2017. Went to the UK, attended the BCLA, and received the award. Uh, basically, what we were thinking of doing, based, uh, for example, Jordan started that uh, personal effort. Uh, other countries like Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Egypt, each country they wanted to do something, but uh, unfortunately, due to the lack of optometry programs. Some countries don't have it at all. Some do not have enough educated and skilled educators. So what I did uh, through the Eastern Ukrainian Council of Optometry, uh, the regional representative of WCO, uh, I sort of moved from one country to other in, in a period of two years, um, carrying out a structured training program for both educators and final year optometry students where we train them on uh, basic contact lens skills. For example, in Sudan, I just, when I went there, I found out they only use, can you imagine yearly contact lenses, the old fashioned ones? Because uh, with, the, with the war issues, uh, poverty, people can't even afford a monthly disposable contact lenses. So. Uh, trying to educate the educators and the students that are other options available. They didn't even understand what a scleral contact lens is. So I brought a couple of sets with me uh, uh, and I kept them there at the school. We, uh, we did a three-day uh, program there. And then I did a six-month follow-up program with them to see, you know, did they utilize these lenses well? Did they understand? Uh, I, I was able also to contact uh, some companies in the U.S. and bring some samples. Uh, we saw some patients and brought them some lenses free of charge. Uh, the companies did not charge us. And we did serve the community. We, we started like a contact lens clinic back there. And that effort was almost replicated in three or four other countries. So they thought, well, I was worth an award, apparently. <laughs> You are, you are worth an award. I mean, doing a lot. I mean, I mean, just helping patients that can't afford it. Right. I mean, it's su super important and making a difference. Um, yes. You know, we've seen videos and, and doctors doing mission trips and things like that, that make a huge difference on simple things that we take for granted here in the U S. So, you. you know, I applaud you for your efforts there. Um, you know, you're also, I mean, taking it to the next level with, um, you know, the WHO organization and, and, and with vitreal retinal disease and things like that. Give us some information on that, because I, I think that's important, too, is we kind of try to expand scope. I mean, even to like retina instead of just, you know, anterior segment disease. Indeed, indeed. Uh, my passion is basically low vision. Uh, people don't really know that. They think of me as a contact lens educator. But when I started training, I was involved with low vision patients. And I thought, well, these are a marginalized part of the society. Uh, uh, most of Middle East and Africa don't don't see low vision patients as uh, patients that can be helped just let them do whatever they want to do and put them at homes and just get them out of work. So we thought, well, no, optometry can do much better than that. And with other eye care professionals not able to serve the whole community and think about low vision patients as well, who mostly have vitreoretinal diseases, uh, 
I was approached by WHO uh, through the WCO a couple of years ago to support uh, eye care packages that are targeting the ministries of health or departments of health at the governmental level, thinking how to actually provide uh, accessible, equitable uh, um to, uh, um, you know, uh, vitreoretinal uh, management strategies uh, through primary care, through optometrists first, a training optometrist how to detect diseases before they become way advanced and there is nothing that we can do. Um, allow and train optometrists to, uh, to perform certain uh, activities or... Uh, or uh, certain interventions that are not surgical uh, but uh, and not very invasive, but at the same time uh, allowing, for example, uh, diabetic retinopathy patients diagnosed at least five to ten years earlier, uh, which will actually support and help uh, uh, that patient in providing a quality of life and quality of vision uh, earlier than when they are getting diagnosed by a tertiary eye care center, which they need years actually to go through, or maybe sometimes it becomes too late. And with even with the interventions, or with uh, the vitreoretinal interventions, basically the damage is already done. We're just preserving whatever site that is left. And actually the other part of that is asking ophthalmologists to refer these patients as early as possible because sometimes there's nothing I can do with these patients except with just uh, empathy and have a, just listen to their issues. Most of the time with the low vision clinics that I do in the Middle East, I just simply listen to patients. I do not do any low vision intervention because their vision uh, loss was irreversible due to uh, we're not being able to de be detected early, unfortunately. So that was really the work of WHO in that. Excellent. Uh, you know, optometrists that are, are being going to be inspired by this video and all the work that you do, How? what can optometrists do all over the world um, to kind of help support your efforts and what you're doing and optometry in other countries and, and things like that? What, what can we do? My thinking was, hey, just, you know, join... Um, the World Council of Optometry as a member, you know, kind of help support that with small membership fee and you get a lot of education. Anything else that, you know, optometrists can do to help help you? Because you do you give a lot back to optometry and it really, it affects all of us. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's in Africa, it affects all of us. We're a global community. Um, you know, like I, I've always said in a lot of these podcasts, um, a, a lot of companies that are overseas it will come to the U.S., you know, they might lobby against us and say, hey, we do this in Jordan. It's just a why do we have to do this here in the U.S.? Things like that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, the distribution of uh, eye care um, uh, all over the world is not really um, as appropriate as we want it to be. There are some countries where optometrist to population ratio is like one to a million. Can you think about these things? Um, you wouldn't think of a developed uh, a country like the U.S. that these things are happening. But in certain countries, unfortunately, this is going on. Um, the majority of uh, avoidable blindness and low vision uh, is due to simply a patient does not have access to a simple pair of spectacles. 
Uh, some parents, uh, I've seen that all over our region, Middle East and Africa, and even parts of India. I do a lot of work in India as well. Uh, the mother and father say, well, uh, we cannot afford 10 bucks for a pair of specs. Uh, maybe just let the girl sit in the front of the classroom. Uh, uh, we have like two other children. Maybe she just can't, doesn't have to study beyond uh, the age of 10 or 11. Some children are left behind just because the parents cannot afford a pair of specs. Even if they can manage miraculously to, uh, you know, to bring them, if something is, if they broke, they cannot get them repaired. Uh, they cannot enforce their uh, children to, to, to be compliant with wearing these glasses because of, unfortunately, uh, the bullying that's going on among the children. So I think optometry worldwide uh, should support uh, other uh, countries who do not have accessible, equitable eye care. For example, if you can join the WCO, that will be great. You mentioned that. But the thing is, we need to support uh, the public health efforts and the educational efforts. The good thing about the WCO, and I would like to use your platform to uh, advertise about that, it's a membership, uh, a free uh, service. There are two fellowships that uh, WCO offer. A general one, that will, if, for example, if you come from a country like you, doctor, uh, you, uh, you, the U.S. is a member of uh, WCO, and you approach another country like, for example, Jordan, which is also a member of WCO, and you want to conduct uh, a, uh, a protocol to support uh, the, uh, the Department of Health in screening school children, which something doesn't uh, happen in, in our regions. We don't have school-based screening programs anyway in many countries in the region. Uh, so you will apply for the WCO, for example, and they will review your application. And if it seems that uh, it meets the standards, they would support you to come to our region for a few days and support the public health effort. Another thing, if you uh, if you are an educator, uh, you can talk with um, another academic institution um, and uh, come as a mentor for at least a week. Uh, develop a section of the curriculum, support the work in the clinic. And this is something that WSO is supporting. And lots of optometrists worldwide are not aware of such efforts. So if they go to the website and if see they are eligible, I would encourage them actually to apply. There are a few fellowships there waiting for someone to grab them, to be honest with you. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. Um... Just uh, in closing here, what do you think the future holds uh, for research in optometry? Because you do a lot with that, and um, interested to hear your thoughts. Good. Uh, I'm actually supervising now a student with uh, in an institution in South Africa, and we're uh, looking at uh, interventions at the primary school level in terms of myopia. You know, myopia is on the rise, it's becoming an epidemic, and lots of companies have introduced uh, contact lenses and ophthalmic lenses that will actually manage that progression. But if you imagine a country that you are not even allowed to actually assess a child, uh, you're not allowed to fit a contact lens to a child, and you cannot ensure compliance with spectacles, what can you do then? So I think the future of optometry research should focus 
on providing management at the schools, at the primary level, uh, um, integrating teachers, parents, and practitioners, uh, engaging them all at the same level to ensure that parents are aware of such management strategies, teachers understand the need for these things, and ensuring that practitioners have uh, the competencies and the scope to allow them actually to offer these interventions to the, the students and the children. I want to thank you so much for joining. It, it was an inspiration to have you on the show. I mean, all the work that you're doing all over the world, different countries. Thank you so much for what you're doing for optometry. Um, if you, I can be of any help or anything, you know, you know, you can always contact me. Send send me stuff. I'm happy to share it on my platform. It is one of the things that I really want to help. You know, expand scope and, and optometry all over the world and 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 help patients because, like you said, that story with. You know, the young girl, unfortunately, that can't move forward because the parents can't. It, it really it really breaks your heart. It's 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 unfortunate because those things here in the U.S., we, we I don't you don't even think about, you know, because there's services, programs here that help um, and, 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 and that thing. So it's unfortunate with something so simple as a pair of glasses. Um, so sometimes either the mission trips help and all those things help. But maybe it's just having more optometrists in that area do that and just with scope increasing scope practice and what more we can do so thank you so much for joining us it's such a pleasure thank you so much for your time and effort and thanks for the audience for listening to us take care